Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Impossible Podcast. Today's episode is number 14 with Andy Stumpf. If you guys don't know who Andy is, he's a former Navy SEAL, a pilot, a wingsuit pilot who actually has two world records, one for jumping from the highest elevation, 36,500 feet, and another one for flying over 18 miles in a wingsuit. On top of that, he's a bow hunter, and he's a host of Zone Podcast, Cleared Hot. In today's show, we talk about Andy's background, his wingsuit adventures, uh, how he got into bow hunting, and all the lessons he's learned throughout his life of doing hard, difficult things, and why it gives him a unique perspective on today's modern life. It's a really interesting one, and I'm really excited to get into it. But before we get into it, a couple ways you guys can support the podcast. First of all, if you want to do something uncomfortable, but you just can't get comfortable in the right gear, go check out impossiblegear.com. It's the best gear to make sure that you're comfortable while doing something uncomfortable. Now, I have to warn you guys, if you buy an Impossible shirt and then you listen to this interview, you might want to hurdle yourself out of an airplane or off of a mountain it might happen. I just need to tell you that up front. And if it does, I can't be responsible for your actions. The combination of the two might be deadly, so be careful out there. Check it out. ImpossibleGear.com. It's the best gear to help you be comfortable while doing something uncomfortable. You can get 10% off with discount code PODCAST. So check it out and go look awesome while knocking something off your impossible list, all right? Also, as per the usual check out movewellapp.com. If you guys are looking to get stronger, to get faster, recover from injuries faster, or just feel better on a day-to-day basis, you got to check out movewellapp.com. 10-minute mobility routines to help you feel better, perform your best, and recover from injuries faster. I built this because I needed it myself, and uh, we've really built out the different routines and movements that you can do. And so you really want to check this out. It's a free app. You can get it at movalapp.com. It's got rave reviews and iTunes. So check it out, movalapp.com. It's free to download. It's the best way to get in your 10 minutes of mobility a day so you can get stronger, get faster, and recover from injuries better, okay? Movalapp.com. Check it out. All right, that's it for announcements. Let's get into my interview with Andy Stumpf. All right, and we're live. Today, guys, I've got Andy Stump. He's a Navy SEAL, five Bronze Stars, a Purple Heart. He's a wingsuit pilot. He's an actual pilot. He's a podcast host, a hunter. You got a lot of stuff going on, man. I struggle to find time in my calendar occasionally, and I was a SEAL. I am no longer a SEAL. I've been out of the military for five years, so I don't want to portray myself as something that I am not. The rest of the stuff you said, yes, I actively am uh, still doing those things. Nice. Um, so. You've got a ton of things going on, and I just figure give the people for who, everyone who's not familiar with you just kind of the quick rundown rundown of who you are, your background, and then we'll get into some of the stuff that you're currently up to. 
Sure. Uh, you know, for me, I grew up in California. I wouldn't say that I was a surfer kid, but I grew up in a surfer town. Uh, it's in the Monterey Bay. It's called Santa Cruz. They got an awesome roller coaster set up there, the Boardwalk. Amazing place to grow up. I was surrounded by the water. I did junior lifeguards in the summer times when I wasn't working for my dad and uh, got into water polo my freshman year of high school. And all of that exposure in the water certainly helped me when I left that high school environment. I know I knew from a very young age that I wanted to pursue becoming a SEAL. And obviously, you know, SEAL is an acronym that stands for Sea, Air, and Land. The C aspect is, I think personally, what, what gets most people. Most people feel very uncomfortable in the water. So that was a was a benefit for me going forward. And then right after getting out of high school, I started on my Navy journey. Well, I was very fortunate to make it through the pipeline sequentially. I didn't realize at the time uh, the number of or the statistical odds of not making it through in one shot. Um, some people get rolled back for performance issues. Some people get rolled back for medical issues or a combination thereof. I was very fortunate. I was able to make it through training on my first shot from day one till day 180. Started my career on the West Coast. Did 17 years of both West Coast and East Coast time. About five of those were pre-9-11, and then the rest of it was post-9-11. And you know, you don't need a, a history book to really figure out the difference in the occupation between one and the other in comparison to those time periods. And I really developed a love of skydiving while I was in the military, but I wasn't able to do it to the level that I wanted to pursue it because we were busy doing other things. And when I was medically retired in 2013, that's when I really dug into the skydiving world. And when I was first getting into it, it actually had nothing to do with the wingsuit. That came about a year later. I had seen them before, but quite frankly, it looked cumbersome and uncomfortable on the ground, which it actually is because it's all unzipped and it's just kind of dangling everywhere. You, you look like a hot mess. But when you zip it up and you jump out of the plane and it becomes an aerodynamic device, it's a little bit of a different story. But it, I just didn't give it you know, any thought whatsoever. I actually completely dismissed it a few times. Started teaching people, specifically Air Force personnel, some jump procedures and techniques we had learned on the Navy side. And that led me to being introduced to the guy who taught me how to base jump. I also did not base jump while I was in the military because it was expressly prohibited. But started doing that after the military and then combined those two things. Uh, the base jumping and the wingsuit. Uh, it's, it has to start. I get asked all the time, you know, how do you learn how to wingsuit base jump? And the first thing is you need to learn how to skydive. And then you need to learn how to fly a wingsuit. Then you need to learn how to base jump. And then you slowly, very, very, very slowly, unless you want to die, incrementally combine the two, uh, which I was able to do under the, the mentorship of somebody who had the most base jumps out of anybody on the face of the planet. And he really shepherded me through a static object that I learned on and then took me overseas to Europe for my first wingsuit base jumping trip. We did my first one off of Monte Brento in Italy. I'm not going to say that it's low risk, but I'll say it's lower consequence because you have a lot of altitude and time to sort out any issues. And then from there, over a course of years, progressed to, I don't think personally that I'm at a, at a high level. There's certainly many people that are exponentially better than myself, but I can generally hang with those people. Uh, so there's that aspect. Somewhere in that time period as well, I dove into flying and accrued you know, just under 3,000 hours of flight time. And somewhere in there as well, I started getting hit up to do uh, public speaking in the business sector or the business world, I should say. There's many sectors inside of the business world, obviously. 
And it started with a buddy who owned a company and said, Hey, can you come talk to my company? So I went and talked to the company and somebody from the audience was from another company and Hey, will you come talk at my company? And that slowly built over time. And, you know, kind of as with most things in my life, post-military, I am taking the advice of people who are smarter or more successful than myself, which is perfect because that's just about everybody. And I take their suggestions and I run with them if they make sense. And so that's how the podcast started as well. I got recommended to do it from somebody that I have a lot of respect for, who's very successful in the space. And, you know, next thing I know, there's a small podcast set up at my house and it's slowly growing. I'm 32 episodes in and I don't know where it's going, but I know I like doing it. So I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. So I guess the short version is my life's a total mess. I have absolutely no idea what I actually do for a living, but I have fun. Oh, I forgot. I'm getting into bow hunting as well, too. So somewhere in there, I developed a passion for bow hunting and also, you know, snowboarding and the snow sports that are available up here in Montana. I got regular snowboards for the resort. I got split boards for the backcountry. So although I don't know precisely how to describe what I do, I definitely have fun while I'm doing it. What I like about that is I get asked a lot, like, how do you, you know, how do you figure out what you're good at or even what you like or, you know, how to like build your own life or questions like that. And a lot of it, you know, my answers are very similar to what you just said. Just try a bunch of stuff out, you know, <laughs> listen to people smarter than you, see if you're good at it, see if you like it and uh, dive in. So um, one of the things I think that I think that draws a lot of people in, uh, you know, to your story and your background besides uh, the SEAL history is, is the wingsuit flying because it's so um, it's kind of, the, you know, a lot of people have gone skydiving at one point in their life, um, or at least want to go skydiving. And then wingsuit's kind of like the next level. And base jumping is kind of the next, you know, if you're wingsuiting out of a plane, that's one thing. But uh, base jumping's that next level. Um, what was the the piece? Uh, I assume you, 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 you learned skydiving in the military, or was that right before the military? I, well, actually wasn't old enough. The law right now is that you have to be 18 to even with parental consent prior to that to learn how to skydive. So I joined when I was 17 and was off in the military by the time I was 18. And I, the first jump I ever did out of an airplane, when we, uh, the seal pipeline, when I went through, it is now different. And I'm very unfamiliar with the exact nature of all the steps they take now. But when I went through, you classed up and began BUDS, which is basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training. You're not a SEAL at the end of BUDS. It's very basic. And the emphasis on that needs to seriously be on the B. You don't know anything, but you think you know everything. So you're very dangerous. But upon graduation, they sent our entire class to Fort Benning, Georgia. And the first jump that I ever did was out of a C-130 static line jump wedged in between. I have I mean, honestly, I don't know how many people I would assume somewhere between 50 to 75 people on the aircraft. And I'm glad that I was because I don't know if I would have gone if I was the first person out the door and I might have just sat back down if I was the last person on the plane. So I was wedged in and the line started moving at chow time. And the next thing you know, I was suspended underneath a round parachute underneath the C-130 and I impacted and they teach you it's called a PLF or a parachute landing fall. And you're supposed to land in a systematic way where you absorb the force as you kind of roll through it. I landed on my heels and in the back of my head and uh, laid there on the ground, questioning whether or not I could uh, complete the four other mandatory jumps. And 
was able to do it and went back to a SEAL team. And later on, you know, SEALs are required to do a lot of things. Internally, we often describe ourselves as a jack of all trades. You have to be able to shoot, move, communicate, but drive vehicles and operate with helicopters and work <clears throat> radios and all sorts of things. So you're constantly chasing your currency. You'll spend two weeks on diving and you'll get really good at current at diving. And then you got to shift and you got to go out to the desert and work on your land navigation skills or the mountains or the Arctic environment. And one of the blocks that we do is air ops or air operations. And there are two types of jumpers in the military. There's static line jumpers and free fall jumpers, but they'll share the same kind of aircraft. And in an operational element, they split you up. The new guys, which are the ones who are generally only static line quality, sit on the left as you're viewing the front of the aircraft. And then the older guys who are more seasoned and who are jumping free fall parachutes sit on the right. And the static line jumpers go out first and the free fall jumpers look at you and they mock you and they point and they laugh. And I couldn't really figure out why you jump and, you know, pound into the ground over and over again. And then the airplane flies up to altitude and the free fall jumpers come out. And when they land, they are high-fiving each other and talking about how much fun they had while the static line people are, you know, trying to set their femur and, you know, find their courage to go do another static line jump. Cause it honestly is not comfortable and it didn't take me very long. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but it didn't take me very long to realize that I was on the wrong side of the aircraft. So I actually went to a civilian skydiving drop zone, skydive San Diego, exactly. And went through a weekend course. I started on a Friday and did the academic portion. And by Sunday afternoon, I was qualified and I was jumping on my own. And I kept going on the weekends or in my time off. And I eventually had a couple hundred jumps. And a message came out saying that if you had a little bit of civilian experience, you could go out to Yuma, which is where they teach military freefall. And you could challenge the military curriculum, which is what I ended up doing. And then beyond that, I never, I never looked back. But truly, it all came from the realization that I was on the wrong side of the airplane. And it seemed that the other people were having much more fun than me. I had no idea that I was going to like it as much as I did or do. But after that first free fall jump, just letting go of an aircraft in flight and actually falling, people will describe it as flying, but it's not, you're just falling. I, I was definitely hooked. And it's it's been a bug that stuck with me ever since. And that was back in 1999. And I've been jumping ever since. Is the, is the military... Uh, procedure or the training sequence uh, similar to the AFF certification that civilians will go through, or is it uh, a similar but separate process? I'm pretty sure the military course is three, if not four weeks. You do, I mean, well, because the military gear is different. Military equipment is designed to carry a rucksack or, you know, military parachutes are actually designed to become entangled with another jumper and land them safely as well. That's why they're so big and slow and docile. Uh, I mean, AFF, people ask me how hard it is to start skydiving and it's not, I'm, I'm dead serious when I tell them the barriers to entry are very low. I, I started on a Friday and so can anybody else and be jumping on their own by Sunday. I mean, it's just gravity. If you can smile and relax, you can make it through the civilian AFF program in about 72 hours. I've got a, I've got a friend, he's a comedian and skydiver. And those are the two things. And he actually jumps over at Scott F. San Diego. And it's just, it's funny to me just how it's one of those things that always seems so foreign and so ridiculous until you just decide that you're going to go do it. And then you realize, okay, the certification process is six or seven jumps. And then, you know, at a certain process, once you do all the coursework, you 
you know, literally all that's left to do is go up in the plane and jump on your own and <laughs> and start applying it. And then you realize, okay, you can start progressing pretty quickly once you do that. But, um, you know, it's that zero to one part where you're like, okay, I'm going to jump out of this plane the first time on my own with no one attached to me. That's, that's the piece you have to get over in order to, to kind of start that whole journey. The first step can be a bitch sometimes. But I have found that uh, if you take that first step, the rewards are right around the corner. So so how many jumps did you have to kind of get under your belt before you're like, you know what, Uh, I'm going to get into the wingsuit part of skydiving? Because um, a lot of times people get the wingsuit and base jumping confused a little bit just because, um, you know, they kind of look the same, but there's a lot of height differential and everything. But yeah, well, how many jumps did you have to do before you got into the wingsuit, and then what did that progression look from like from the skydiving to eventually starting to base jump everywhere? I would say, as far as my skydiving journey, if you wanted to pick a word to describe it, I got into the wingsuit stuff later than most people do. Uh, I think the first time I jumped a wingsuit, I had high three thousands, if not low low four thousands, as far as jump experience. And when people hear that, they might think that that's a very high number. And in comparison to some people, it is. But it's not uncommon to see people at drop zones or talk to them. And if they work in the sport, you'll have 10,000 or 15,000 or 20,000 jumps. So there's that end of the spectrum. And then for an average jumper like myself, I'd say I have a good amount of experience. But I, I definitely had the advantage with that experience getting into a wingsuit. The regulatory body for skydiving in the U.S. is the USPA or the United States Parachute Association. Their recommendation or guideline is 200 jumps from zero to 200 jumps, no wingsuit, no real anything. But for whatever reason, they picked 200 jumps as the place where they think people have enough experience to start wingsuit jumping. And I personally disagree with that. It might work for some people, but I would say those people are the anomaly and not the norm. The longer you can wait, the better. Because skydiving in a wingsuit is amazingly fun, and wingsuits can get bent out of shape really fast. And it, you need to pull from your experience bucket to get out of that when that happens. And if you just don't have it, you know that's where accidents and catastrophes can occur. And then if you want to transition into the base jumping world, specifically wingsuit base jumping, you obviously need to go learn how to base jump, which is a totally different skill set than skydiving. The equipment might look similar, but it's very different. Skydiving, you have two parachutes because you have altitude and altitude equates to time. Base jumping, you have one parachute. You're much closer to the ground. There's no point in having a reserve because you're not going to have time to use it. So you pack the parachute differently. There's multiple configurations that you can pack the parachute in, whereas in skydiving, there's really only one. I guess you could get a little bit fancy, but I mean, 99.99% of the time, you're packing your parachute exactly the same. So you have to get new gear and you have to learn what it's like to jump off of an object that's not moving. Because when you exit an airplane and you're skydiving, people go, I have taken probably 1,500 people for their first tandem. And very often they'll say, you know, I really don't like that feeling on a roller coaster where you go over the top and you get that stomach rising sensation. And then at the end of the jump, you know, you talk to them on the ground, they're like, wow, you know, I didn't feel that. And the reason you don't feel it is, is that the aircraft is moving through the air mass. So when you jump out, you're actually getting thrown forward a little bit, but you have the advantage of that speed uh, that prevents that stomach rising sensation. And the faster you go, the less you're going to feel it. 
Base jumping is the opposite. I, I get that stomach rising sensation every time because you're going, it's a, a dead air start, meaning that you have no airspeed. And without airspeed, you also can't control your body. So if you step off of an object, especially in a wingsuit, there's a one to two second, depending on how good you are, your body position on exit and the type of suit that you're flying, that you really can't do anything because there's no air to interact or airspeed to interact with the wingsuit. So if you set yourself up for failure and do something that you need to recover from in those first few seconds, it has killed many people because you just can't. Regardless, you could be doing exactly the right thing, but the physics of the situation just aren't going to work out. So you have to learn how to manage that dead airspeed start. And then you have to progress yourself into flying your wingsuit. And to do that, I mean, it... I would never recommend that anybody do the things that I do. However, I'm not going to stop doing them because of the value that I get from them. But if you're going to do that, you need to find an exit point that gives you, like Monte Brento is a great example for your first wingsuit jump. It gives you altitude, which equates to time. And pick a wingsuit that's small and work with a mentor or somebody that is experienced that can kind of give you an outside perspective of your skill level. And that way you're setting yourself up for success instead of failure. But it's a transition and a, pro a progression that, in my opinion, should take years. And I hear people at Drop Zones who will come and they want to go through that AFF program, which stands for Accelerated Freefall. And they'll say, hey, I just want to, I want to get through this as fast as possible so I can go wingsuit base jump. And I avoid those people like the plague because they are going to be the statistics that make up the fatality list. You you said uh, you're never going to stop doing it because of what it gives you. What do you mean by that? You know, the videos are like YouTube videos. The internet sensations are what most people focus on. And that's probably 2% of what wingsuit base jumping actually is. There's the approach. There's being out in the backcountry with close friends that all have the same type of goals. Uh, you know, the flying feels... The flying feels good, but it's not why I do it. For me, and I've talked about it on previous podcasts, it's it's more for me about the mental focus and clarity that I get from jumping than the jumping itself. Mm. Do you do you still get nervous when you jump? Every time. And the the moment or the day that I don't feel that nervousness, I'm gonna pack my stuff up and I'm gonna walk down the hill because in that moment, if your alarm bell, specifically wingsuit base jumping, if the alarm bells in your body are not all screaming, you're not paying attention to the risk. And if you want to talk about something that's deadly, I think complacency is as high on that list as you can possibly get. Uh, one of the things that um, I've taken, I want to say 50 some people tandem jumping before, uh, not, not me as the uh, jumper, but just organized the event and everything and then did uh i took i want to say 60 or 70 people uh bungee jumping and one of the things i like about it is it forces you when you're like on skydiving a little bit less so bungee jumping a little bit more because you're you're standing on the, the bridge as you're about to jump off but it forces you to like you know you're whole body's on red alert and you still have to be the one that jumps yeah, you you have to decide to to take the leap, and one of the things I liked about it so much is once you do that in a in a physical realm, and you you do it, and you get into your body, and you start like, you know, okay, this is <laughs> this is a, an appropriate standpoint for my body to be on red alert and to be freaking out and be you know 
very worried about what I'm doing. And then you go do it and you realize you can come out of it the other side. Um, you can start noticing those things in other places in your life. And uh, it makes <laughs> it puts things into perspective in a way that you don't necessarily get if you're not constantly, not necessarily constantly, but not doing it on a regular basis. I completely agree. The everything that you're describing that you encounter, do what I'll say. I mean, I feel it a little bit skydiving, but less so because, again, more time and altitude, more experience in that world. So it's it's not that I'm complacent. I'm more comfortable. But all of those feelings are front and center when you're standing on the edge, zipped up in your wingsuit, getting ready to send it. And I think the lessons learned, like you said, they all apply in the abstract as well, and they'll help you in other avenues of your life. And that's why, to me, the risk is worth the reward. So I've actually looked at doing, um, uh, there's a couple people that offered tandem base jumping. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. What'd you say? Sean Chuma is uh, the guy I would recommend you go with. He's based out of Twin Falls, Idaho. Okay. There's another guy that was in Utah and... um, I almost went based. We almost scheduled. We were going to be out in uh, Salt Lake and we were going to schedule something with him. And then I want to say a couple, like two weeks before we were scheduled to go out there, like he got in an accident, I think out in Europe and boom. And one of the things that's always, I used to run a extreme sports website where we just kind of collected all these crazy videos of people doing um, insane things and just would run across, you know, all these, you know, incredible it was i think it was when gopro first started kind of proliferating a bunch of these videos and we saw a bunch of the the early stuff with jeb and uh, jeb corliss and a few other guys and then we saw a bunch of the accident ones too and what goes through your mind as far as like knowing knowing what the statistics are with base jumping and doing it anyways how do you block that out is there is there a process or do you just kind of focus in on the now Yeah, I don't pay too much attention to the statistics because I don't really have any control over them unless I wanted to detach myself completely from the activity. I focus on the things I can control, my currency, my competency, an objective viewpoint of where I am skill level wise, very conservative approach when it comes to weather, an extremely conservative conservative approach when it comes to the people that I'll actually go into the backcountry and jump with. And I focus on the variables that I can control and I'm constantly looking for a reason not to do it. And if I find one, I'll walk away and come back and do it again another day. And when it comes to that moment of, you know, I'm not going to say terror, but I'll say that you are infinitely aware of the risk you're about to undertake. I actually enjoy that moment again because of the clarity of mind and focus in what it does to me, it doesn't last just for that moment for me. I'm in a good trip where I'll go overseas to Europe and spend seven to 10 days in the back country with good friends, you know, jumping our asses off. I mean, that, that has impact on my life for half of a year afterwards. One of the things that is, you know, um, with base jumping, it's so, I feel like every base jumping amplifies everything to like 10 X degree or whatever. But, um, you know, I'll do, I'll do a bunch of ultra marathons. I'll do a bunch of different types of extreme events in another way. And one of the things I like about it is it puts you in touch with your body in a way that I don't think most people get. And what's interesting, you know, when you were mentioning it is that you're constantly looking, you know, for a reason to back down or not to jump. And, I think for most people, most people don't 
get into their bodies enough to recognize the difference between, okay, I shouldn't jump because, you know, this is actually not a good scenario for me to jump. And I shouldn't jump because, you know, it's a little bit scarier. I'm a little bit nervous. And there's something about these extreme activities that force you to kind of um, become really intimately aware with your own your own mindset, your own, you know, psychology, your own, you know, physiology, and just, you know, what is, you know, what is that limit? You have a, you have a quote on your site. Um, was it traveling, traveling the world in search of boundaries or something like that? And I like that because we talk about pushing your limits and, and finding what those limits are, but most people don't even get close to it. They don't even get, you know, touch it. I mean, to me, from just from what I see with my own eyes, it almost seems like in the modern day, people are coached away from that. It seems like they're coached towards comfort instead of struggle. And I I mean, I was raised the exact opposite of that. And I'm trying to raise my kids the exact opposite of that as well. I mean, there's no app for real life. And I find that so many people are looking for the fastest and easiest way and I should say also less painful or least painful way to accomplish something. And in my experience, the things that come easy have almost no value. And the things that you work for and you struggle for, they have the most value. And it, uh, extreme sports, you could certainly use those as an example, but I think people can get the same level of being in tune and in touch with themselves if they just would put their phone down and get outside for a bit and spend some time in an environment where you are doing things that you want to do instead of following other people and looking at other people who are doing things that you aspire to do. Like just flip that paradigm on its head. It's probably the main thing that I would change about, especially men in our culture, is that they would be required to go out and do physically difficult things. Mm, I like that. One of the one of the things that I, is drawn me to just the outdoors and ultra marathons and trail running is the idea of just you stick yourself out there. You know, I'm I'm not really the fastest runner in the world. I'm not going to be, you know, dominating any races. But what drew me to ultras was getting out into the middle of this backcountry and realizing you're 20 miles out and you've got 30 miles to come back in and. Nobody's coming to save you. Nobody's going to come swoop you up. Nobody's going to, you know, feel sorry for you. You have to, you know, hoof it back out. And that self-reliance that you have to build up and that self-confidence that you build up once you figure out how to do that. And, you know, I'm sure it's like that with, you know, hiking out uh, to your to your jump points and everything. But there's something about like just getting away from everything for a good you know, several hours and then realizing the only one that's going to get you back is you. And you can't, you can't call in a helicopter or anything to come get you. I, I couldn't agree more. I I mean, I try to tell everybody that will possibly listen to just get out and go push yourself and learn to rely on yourself instead of those around you. I, I think it's an incredibly important lesson that is just lost along the way when again, the aim and goal seems to be speed and comfort instead of the journey and what you can learn while you're on it. Speaking of uh, difficulty, challenge, and and all that, are what are do you have one or two jumps 
that were either extraordinarily difficult or challenging in a way that was memorable and changed the way you kind of looked at the sport? Mm. Or just favorite ones you've done? I would say the most involved jump that I've done were the jumps that led up to and then the final jump in 2015 that set the record, which I believe has been broken since then, but the record for the distance traveled in a wingsuit. And there were just so many moving pieces. There was, you know, the oxygen tech and the pilot and the aircraft and the gear specific to be able to go that high. And then the, the symphony that needed to occur between myself and that oxygen tech and the pilot. And we needed to have winds in our favor. That one was probably from a logistical standpoint, by far the most difficult. Uh, and at the same time, probably the most rewarding because it was done in the hopes of raising money for the Navy SEAL Foundation. And, you know, again, something that difficult had a very positive impact because of the reward that it had to others. Uh, but, you know, I try to I try to not get into situations where I have a bunch of those like, oh, my gosh, this was the worst one or, oh, this was the scariest one. I really would rather just have a career that is like if it, you know if you had a stereo equalizer, I'll just keep it right at like a four. I don't need to be at a 10 as hard and as fast as often as possible and burn out. I'd much rather just, you know, take it easy. I actively am looking for ways not to have those what I'll call oh shit moments. It's it's kind of funny because you're you're kind of on the bleeding edge of what humans can possibly do with uh, wingsuiting and base jumping, and you're like, I'm just going to keep it at a four, and that four is like a nine and a half for <laughs> for most people. Um, well, maybe I'll push it to a five then, push people up to like a ten point five. There you go. Um, so real quick on that jump, uh, some of the stats I think I think I've got them right. It, you did 18 miles, just over, yes. So 18 miles, you're at 35,000 feet. You had like a custom, yeah, 36,500. 36, and so you had to get like a whole custom oxygen setup and everything for that. Um, can you can you dive into that a little bit? Just you know, kind of the the quick two to three minute uh, overview of that jump, and then uh, the cause that you're raising it for. Sure. So I actually I did not go out and procure that oxygen system. I mean those things. I, I don't even know what the cost would be, but I'd imagine it is cost prohibitive. So there happens to be a few people who work in that industry. Uh, Tad was the guy, the oxygen tech's name, and he actually had all of the gear. And I think he had worked in that industry for quite some time. So the pilot, Ray, will only go to those altitudes with Tad on the aircraft because they've worked together for so long. So more than anything, what I really did was integrate with a seamless team up in uh, Davis, California that does high altitude jumps. I'm not going to say routinely, but they do them regularly enough that it's the safest place and quite frankly, the only place you can go because they have the uh, FAA paperwork to do it. But if you're going to go that high, you have to purge all the nitrogen out of your system because the partial pressure of oxygen decreases as you go up. There's still the same amount of oxygen there, but it's just spread out more. And if you were to take your mask off at 36,500 feet, you'd have a time of usable consciousness, probably less than 30 seconds. You'd be face down. You wouldn't be dead yet, but you'd eventually get there. So you sit on the ground for an hour and you actually pre-breathe aviator's oxygen, which is devoid of any moisture because you don't want the moisture interaction interacting with the cold temperatures at altitude. And then the entire climb to altitude, you're pre-breathing or you're still pre-breathing that oxygen. 
And underneath the suit on my left leg, uh, just below my kneecap and right next to the calf, there was an oxygen tank. And the hose went from my mask to the regulator that was on my chest strap. And then from there, it connected to that tank and had an adapter that could connect to the tank on the aircraft. So right before I exited, Tad, who I, and again, I wouldn't been able to have done this without Tad or Ray. Tad, I basically sat there and had my arms out to the side and just let him do his work. He turned on the bottle and connected uh, or detached my hose from the aircraft and got me ready to go out of the airplane. And then at that point, I think the published duration on that bottle was maybe 10 minutes, but that's what I had. So everything that I, uh, that I needed, I was jumping inside of the suit or exterior to the suit. And so 30, 36,000 feet is about cruising altitude of an airliner. It's, um, I think I did one jump at 18,000 and we had to get oxygen to go up that high. It was just yep. through a, a normal tube, but most jumps are what between 13 and 15. Yeah. I mean, you're lucky to find a drop zone that's going to do 15,000. Most are 12,500 to in between that. Okay. So you're about three times as high as a, as a typical jump. Yeah. Yeah. Plus or minus. (laughs) How much, how much total time were you in the air for that jump? Uh, let's see. I was flying for, I can't even remember the stat right now. It was either just over, it was just over eight minutes. I was actually flying my wingsuit and then the canopy ride was maybe 90 seconds. So probably less than 10 minutes. And I got that mask off of my face as soon as humanly possible because it's just jammed into your face. It gives you just this lovely tension headache the entire time. I uh, That video, I, I watched it, I think, just before the interview. And uh, I'll link to it in the show notes, but it's pretty badass. It's pretty cool. Um, what do you, how do you, how do you follow that up? Do you have any other big like wingsuiting goals or any other, any other jumps that you're wanting to do after that? Or what's, uh, you know, you're kind of always chasing that high. What's that, what's that next thing? Uh, to survive, I would say <laughs> doing the things that I want to do and, you know, not get killed in an avalanche while I'm out here backcountry snowboarding or to continue to be able to base jump or to be able to skydive and, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't have any desire to like be that guy. I don't care about being a YouTube celebrity and I don't care about records. I really don't. I do the things that I do because I enjoy them and I find them to be enriching for me. And if people want to pay attention to it, that's cool. And if, and if they don't, that's also just equally as cool. I mean, I'm doing it for me. You still get to get a, you still get to have that feeling while you're, you're jumping, whether, whether or not anyone's paying attention. Are there, are there any spots that you're looking at from like a, I was in, I was in, um, Lauterbrunnen earlier this year and we were hiking through the town and we ran across, you know, a whole slew of base jumpers. Are there any specific, and I was just like, okay, I could, I can understand why someone want to, you know, fly through this place. Like it's pretty amazing. Are there any specific? There, yeah. I've been there probably four times. Lauterbrunnen Valley is one of my favorite spots. We always stay up in Vengen. I mean, you can use the trolley cars and the cable cars and the bus system. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's the equivalent of being a diabetic and standing in a candy aisle, you know, both (laughs) sides of the valley you can go and jump off of. Uh, I would like to go explore a little bit more in France. I'd love to spend some time in the Dolomites, but you know what I really wish is that I could spend more time in the U S doing it. And it's just a different perspective here. I mean, probably the best wingsuit base jumping in the U S would probably be in Yosemite. And if you go do a wingsuit base jump in Yosemite, you're probably going to go to jail if they catch you. Yeah. 
you know, and you know, so it's the it, in all national parks, it's illegal. There is plenty, probably, of uh, BLM or public land that you can do it from. But I just, you know, I wish there wasn't that legal aspect to it, and that's what makes Lauterbrunnen so cool. Is that you know, you're not worried about breaking the law, so you you don't have to time it when the visibility conditions are bad for the people chasing you, which makes it also bad for you. You know, the, those the legality issues oftentimes channelize people into doing things in non-optimal times, which in my opinion is going to lower your chance of survival. So, so Europe is a, a yearly trip for me, but I, I do, I would love to explore some more of the U.S. Uh, it's just tough. The, um, uh, we ran into some, uh, the guys that we ran into in Lauterbrunnen, Laud- I think the only things they had to worry about were, I don't know if they had to get a permit or if they had to just pay into a fund. And the fund was basically the, the fund was basically to pay for the farmers whose fields they might land in um, because they're like, oh, it's kind of annoying. Um, I don't know. If that, that seemed like the only uh, like government oversight was they're like, you know, if you're going to be landing in people's fields all the time, there'd be a nice like mini fund to, you know, uh, to, to, yeah, to compensate you know, the the, cool, uh, the farmers that are just letting you do that. The cool thing about that is it's not even mandated by the government. It's the local base jumping community. There's some people that ah. live there in the valley, and you, yeah, you essentially go to the Horner Pub in the base of Lauterbrunnen, and you, I think it's twenty bucks. And they aggregate that money and they give it to the farmers to offset them the potential money they would have lost in their farming season. And the farmers will literally mow down certain sections of their field and they'll put a windsock there. And then the next thing people need to do is they go and they get helicopter insurance, which I think is $15. And that covers you for a couple million dollars of cost for the helicopter. If you get hurt anywhere in the valley or nearby, they'll come and grab you, take you to the hospital. I mean, if those are the barriers to entry and you're going to complain about that, I mean, I have no time for you. <laughs> Switzerland, they've, they've got to figure it figured out. I like it. Um that's it's a different it's a different mentality. You know, if you hey, can I go jump off that cliff? Of course you can. You go you can go do whatever you want to do, but be responsible for what happens. In the US, it's like, hey, can I go jump off a half dome? They're like, no, you're a criminal if you do that. It's just a completely different mentality. Can you can you sneak up to Canada at all and uh do any jumps like on the other side of uh of Glacier? I have considered doing that. I've heard some good stuff about the Banff area. Mm-hmm. I just haven't had the time. This is we're we're probably three quarters of the way through our first winter right now. So, in the spring, summer, and fall months of this year, I hope to get out and explore a little bit more. I've heard some good stuff. Haven't personally experienced it. Interesting. So, how did it? How did you you move from wingsuiting and you know your your Navy SEAL background into hunting? And what kind of drew you? into that. Well, if I'm being totally honest, when I first, when I was in the military and then when I got out of it, uh, for whatever reason, I associated hunting specifically with firearms and it just didn't have an interest for me. And then I heard Joe Rogan and Cam Haynes talking a couple times about bow hunting and Quite frankly, they just wouldn't shut up about it. So it got me interested, but it's, it sounded cool. It sounded challenging. It sounded completely different than the, and again, this is totally on me. It was my own misconception of the, you know, redneck with a beer cooler in the back of his truck with a rifle. Like then, and it's totally on me that I felt that way, but that's the mentality that I had. And I know that that is not the norm for hunters out there who choose to go with a rifle, but, uh, I went and got a bow 
and was just shooting it in the backyard. And I thought that was cool. And, uh, I've been very fortunate over the, uh, over the years, I was able to go on Joe's podcast a couple of times and he's become a, somebody that I consider to be a, a good friend. And, and I have a lot of, uh, faith and confidence in his recommendations. And he introduced me to John Dudley, who is his archery coach. And I happened to be near where John lives in Iowa. So I took my bow and he incredibly generously invited me to his house met him and his wife and his son and spent about a day and a half with him just working on archery, like shooting 3d targets, form and technique and all of this stuff. That's going to make you a successful hunter anyway, that I would say a lot of people skip and they go right for the hunting. Mm-hmm. And about a week after I left, he called me up and he's like, you know, I just had a guy who dropped out of my elk camp that I go to every year. He does his first hunting trip of the season up in Alberta. Their elk season opens a little bit earlier than everywhere else here in the U S and he invited me to go. And I went, I was like, well, I'm not authorized to make decisions. So hold on a second. I have to go ask my wife. And so I went and asked my wife and she was like, you better do it. So I called him back. I'm like, dude, I'm in. So I drove from here in Kalispell, Montana up to Alberta, which was a beautiful drive. And I drove kind of through and near the Banff area. So I'm, I know there's some jumping there. I actually made some notes along the way. Like I will revisit you at a different time of year. Cause I got somewhere to go. And I went with him and he sacrificed the first four and a half days of his hunting season to just kind of shepherd me through. And it was that intro and that experience that really sunk it in for me. And it, it really just blew all those misconceptions that I had out of the water. And then I started realizing that it not only was it rewarding and exciting for me, but it allowed me to economically detach from what I'm going to call factory farming mm-hmm. when it comes to the meat industry. And I love the thought of doing that. And it is my goal in hunting that I never have to purchase meat again. And right now I've got a freezer that's full of elk, deer, and boar that we just got back from Oklahoma hunting. And it's been, it's been great. And then with that is the, what you do with it after you harvest the animal, the, how are you going to cook it? Like I've got a recipe for tonight. I'm going to do some tenderloins from a wild boar and it's just cool. It, it becomes, it becomes a lifestyle more than just a, a hobby. And for me, those things are very appealing. I saw the the photos on your Instagram of the boar that you got, and it was something like, like four hours between like getting the boar and you know cooking it up and, and getting it ready or something like that. And if even that much, yeah. If even that, I think that one we got and you know did all of the. You have to obviously gut the animal, skin the animal, get all this stuff ready. But I think it was on the Traeger within somewhere between two to four hours of being out in the field. And you want to talk about fresh food that you know what was e- was eating in the environment that it came from. I mean, it's a – and I know a lot of people will never be able to experience that, and that's totally cool. Like, I don't have anything against factory farming. I know it serves a purpose. I just have the ability to detach. And for me – that experience after hunting and what you do with it is just as impactful as the hunt itself. That's got to be the freshest things you're <laughs> – it's hard to go back after that, huh? You have to um, – It doesn't suck. Like, oh. It doesn't <laughs> taste the same when you source it from other places for sure. So so Cam has his lift, lift run, hunt combo. Have you uh, considered doing like a, a run, hunt, uh, base jump combo? Does that make any sense at all? I mean, maybe hunt and base jump. I hate running more than just about anything in life. So I'm going to skip that particular activity. 
There's some ad. I think you're in some ad. There's a the Tempur-Pedic ad I saw has they you running all over the place. So, know, but I only ran like 20 yards like five times, and they captured that. <laughs> so. That's as much running as you're going to get out of me. So one of the things you you touched on earlier that I, I'd like to come back to a little bit was uh, just the perspective that you have on different things because of the wide breadth of experiences that you have from the seals to base jumping to hunting. Uh, it seems like you find a way to make things. <laughs> you go out of your way to find the hard way to do things. And uh, I think there's a lot of value in that. I, I, it's one of the things I talk about all the time, but um, is, you know, you said you're raised uh, like that, but you know, is, is that just kind of innate in you? Or are you kind of just always looking for, you know, uh, some, something, uh, some way for things to be a little bit more difficult or is that just, you know, kind of, you know, how you're wired? I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily looking for things to be more difficult. I would say that I'm seeking the things of the highest value. Mm. And in my opinion, you know, life is about the choices that you make and we all have choices every day. I don't care what you do or who you are or where you live. You're going to be presented throughout your day, whether it's consciously or subconsciously with things that you need or you want to do. And I can't really think of a choice or something that you're going to be challenged with that doesn't have options. And some of the options are going to be easier and some of the options are going to be harder. I have always found the highest value from the harder option. So I seek that not because it's difficult, but because of the reward that comes from it. Is it frustrating when you go, you know, you go to these different places, whether it is the seals or it is overseas to, you know, these remote places where you're jumping or you're out in the back country and, and doing the difficult things. And then you come back and, you know, maybe you flip on the TV or you open your phone and you see kind of like the opposite messages being propagated everywhere. Um, is that, is that frustrating? How do you, how do you deal with that? I would describe it as extremely frustrating. You know, people sitting around and screaming bloody murder, complaining about first word, first world problems. You know, the line was too long at Starbucks or their air-conditioned vehicle that they ride to and from their air-conditioned workspace and eat their three squares a day and then another 5,000 calories that they don't need because they have excess and luxury to do so. You know, it's hard. It's hard to hear people complain about those things. And the only way that I can combat it is I try to put out a different message. I try to tell people to seek difficult things. I try to tell people to stop looking for change and be the change that they want to see in the world. Now, don't wait for somebody else to do it. Get off your ass and do it yourself. You know, the, probably the, the one underlying, I don't like the term motto, but principle that I come back to is be the example. And that applies what in your job, occupationally, in a relationship, as your role as a parent. I, I just, you know, if, you, if the example you're setting is that you're constantly on your phone, don't expect your kids to do anything other than be on the phone. You know, most of the problems that I see in our society are created by the people in our society. And I think that they have the power to fix them too. One of the things that I've mentioned in the past is that I feel like a lot of people get fed this message and it, it's pretty easy to be comfortable and just kind of be on cruise control. And people are kind of fed this saccharine sweet type of existence where 
you know, you think it's satisfying, but then you're kind of always, you know, always picking at it, picking at it. And, you know, it's, you know, feeding a craving, but you're never really like, never really full. It's never really satisfying. And I've always, you know, mentioned like the most, not always, it's not always um, that the hard things are the most satisfying, but the most satisfying things tend to be very difficult. So (laughs) it's not that everything is always, everything hard is always going to be really satisfying, but I tend to find the things that, you know, you really are happy about, the things that you, you know, really are are proud of or, or, you know, look back on fondly. Uh, The ones that make the best stories are the ones that were really difficult in some way, shape or form and took you way outside your comfort zone. Yeah, I agree. I couldn't have said it better. Nice. Um, so as we're uh, as we're wrapping up here, um, I'm curious. You know, we touched on it a little bit, but if you could tell people one thing, um, you know, one thing that you know, one message um, that you think people need to hear, uh, you know, through all the things that you've done, what would what would that one thing be? Be the example. I mean, it really comes down to that. It don't look to other people for your inspiration. Take it on yourself and set that example for other people. I think that's the course correction that our country and our society needs. And a lot of the problems that we're facing right now, if not all of them, they didn't appear overnight. And people are searching for an overnight solution. And I just don't think it's possible. It took a generational change for them to get here. And it's going to take a generational change for them to go away. And that starts with being the example and the change that you want to see. That's nice. Do you, uh, you think it's coming? I have my concerns. Hmm. Interesting, but hopeful, hopeful. I don't know if I would use that term. (laughs) Hey, well, we've got you doing a podcast. I'm trying to do a podcast. I'm trying to share that message. I feel like, I feel like there's a little bit of a, of a, of a backswing where people are starting to realize that, you know, despite, you know, I, I wrote something the other day that, we are objectively at the best time. We are living at the best time, you know, in the history of the world. And we have more people that are depressed, anxious, overweight, unhappy. And I think, you know, there's something about things getting bad, like maybe not bad from a, uh, you know, economic perspective, but something about, you know, getting people to a point where their lives, uh, are unsatisfying in a way that they realize maybe I need to do something different. And I think, you know, I don't, maybe it's just the, the channels that I'm tuned into, but I feel like there's been a swing back, you know, whether it's, uh, you Rogan, uh, Jocko, um, Dr. Jordan Peterson, uh, a bunch of different people, uh, on this kind of backswing of, you know, it's not just doing easy, fun, simple stuff, but it's doing hard, meaningful things and taking responsibility and uh, doing the difficult things that that makes things interesting and worthwhile. I mean, I truly hope so. Uh, I I just try to spend most of my effort and time focusing on the, you know, my generational difference that I can make for my kids. And, you know, I, I hope it has a ripple effect and I hope that there are other people doing the same. I mean, how's the, what's the phrase go? It's, you know, the, it's darkest right before the dawn. Mm-hmm. 
So there you go. I mean, hopefully we're, we're getting closer to the dawn and we're not still going into the darkness because I do agree. It'll have to get to a point, I think, where people are just, they're sickened by what they see for there really to be a change. Cool. So with, uh, with all the things that you are doing and, and you're putting out in the world, where can people find you if uh, they want to get more uh, Andy Stump? Well, we're on a podcast, yours, all right, the Impossible Podcast. So they can always search over for my podcast, which is called Cleared Hot. And uh, other than that, I have all the you know same social media stuff that everybody does. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Just my name, Andy Stumpf, with the number two one two. I can't remember my Twitter handle for the life of me. It's a, some version of my name. I um, I mean, I just I Andy Stumpf thirty seven. I think, yeah. Thank you. Yes, I honestly don't care enough about it to really. <laughs> have those committed to memory. But I mean, that's it. It's, uh, you know, I have uh, a website dedicated to kind of who I am and the things that I do in it. That's andystumpf.com. I mean, it's just throw my name in Google. I mean, it, it, there you go. hopefully most of the stuff you find is accurate. <laughs> hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yes. Yeah, you never awesome. know. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. It's been uh, it's been uh, fun and, and insightful. Um, if you're ever down in, uh, back down in San Diego, let me know. I'm back there quite a bit. So it'd be good to uh, catch up in person. For sure. I would love to. And thank you for having me. Awesome, man. Thanks. All right, guys, that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been following Andy's work for a long time and uh, kind of admired his viewpoint and perspective from afar and really enjoyed getting a chance to talk with him and uh, just kind of hear about his adventures and his story. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. If you guys want to support the podcast, the best way you can do that is by heading on over to iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher and leaving a review and letting other people know about the podcast. Uh, We're almost to uh, 60 reviews and uh, we want to push right on over the edge. So if you haven't done it, go head on over, uh, check it out and let everybody know what you think. Um, also, if you guys want to support the podcast, uh, go check out impossiblegear.com. Pick up an impossible shirt and take a photo of you doing something impossible. Maybe you're jumping out of an airplane. Maybe you're base jumping. Hopefully, you have an experience. Do it in your impossible shirt. It's going to look awesome. It's going to feel great. And it's going to help you be comfortable while doing something uncomfortable. So check it out. You can get 10% off with promo code podcast. Also, if you guys are not doing your 10 minutes of mobility a day. What are you doing? I talk about it every single week. Check out movewellapp.com, movewellapp.com. It's the best app to help you get started with mobility. 10-minute routines, depending on what you want to do. If you want to start lifting heavier, if you want to recover from an injury, if you just want to get more flexible, we have a routine for you, and it's absolutely free to download And if you want to go pro, it's a couple of bucks a month to subscribe. So check it out, movableapp.com. It's the best app out there for mobility work. All right, so that's it for the show. As always, thank you for listening. And until next week, keep pushing your limits and do something impossible. (laughs) 